All right, so we are going to be in Romans chapter 3. We've been working through the book of Romans now for the last few weeks. Um, It has been slower moving than some of our other series, but not entirely slow. We haven't been working through it um, at a snail's pace, but we've been going through it pretty slowly. And we're finally getting into now chapter 3 this evening, Romans chapter 3. We're going to look at the first eight verses. Um, I'm going to stop before we read and, and pray, and then we'll read the, that passage together. So if you could, um, bow with me in prayer. Father, we, we thank you that you, in your graciousness, in your kindness to us, in your, your providence and sovereignty, you preserved your word. You've spoken a word to us through the Apostle Paul, and you preserved that word for us today so that we would learn more about you, benefit from it, understand the the nuances, the complexities of your faithfulness and your righteousness. So we we pray that your word tonight would be spoken and received with clarity and that it would change hearts and change lives. In Jesus' name, amen. So I said, we're in Romans chapter 3, verses 1 through 8. I'm going to read that for us. So listen as I read. Paul says, then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar. As it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you judge. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means. But then, how could God judge the world? But if through my lie, God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying... Their condemnation is just. As we read through that, if you're like, what in the world is Paul talking about? You're not alone. Um, This is regarded as one of the most difficult passages of Scripture to understand. One of the most challenging sections and paragraphs of Romans that there is. And so we're going to try to work our way and navigate our way through this challenging section and, and try to understand what is Paul attempting to say, and then what does it mean for us? Um, It's going to be a bit of a a challenge as we work our way through, but hopefully by the end we will get there. Uh, There's a a common expression, oftentimes associated with relationships, oftentimes associated with dating relationships mostly, about playing games. The, The the guy or the girl in the relationship is, is playing games with the other person. You know, I've been watching over the last few weeks reruns and episodes of the not early 90s, mid-90s sitcom um, Boy Meets World, if, ever, if anyone's familiar with that. Great show. Based in Philly, which I appreciate more than probably most here. But in that show, if, if you've watched it, if you're familiar with the series, there are two main characters, Corey and Topanga. They are... As a series progresses, it's clear these, these two people are meant to be together. They're in love. They're going to be together. 
In one of the early seasons, one of the early episodes, there is a point where um, Corey questions if Topanga likes him. You know, like, like likes him. It's junior high. They're all 13 and 14-year-olds at this point. And, and Topanga kind of hesitates, like doesn't really want to answer. And, and Corey's like, here, if you tell me that you like me, then I'll tell you if I like you. So Topanga finally relents and says, okay, Corey, I like you. Now, do you like me? And based on the episode, Corey just kind of weasels his way out of answering the question. He pretends like he's sleeping. And so Topanga gets angry and runs away. And, and Corey's response, and it actually ends the episode, is, that was fun. He's playing games with her. He's, he's playing games with her emotions. And obviously in 90s, early 90s sitcom, it all ends up working out in the end. Everyone lives happily ever after. But he's playing games with this young girl's emotions. What Paul's going to get at is not the emotions of a 14-year-old girl in Boy Meets World, but he is going to delve into these concepts of playing games. Not playing games with emotions, not playing games with love, but playing games with... Paul playing games with theology and playing games with God ultimately. And unlike when you play games with the emotions of a 14-year-old in a sitcom, playing games with God is a dangerous thing. Paul actually concludes the section we're going to look at by these words, their condemnation is just. Those people who play games with God who want to who manipulate things to their benefit. He, Paul says, your, your condemnation, you, you who do that, your condemnation's just. It is right, it is just that you would face the wrath of God and be condemned for it. So Paul's going to deal with this topic, and as I mentioned, it's a very difficult, challenging sections of, section of Scripture. So I trust that as we work through this and we spend our time here, we will see how and why Paul arrives at this conclusion and what exactly he's talking about. Prior to section, chapter 3, sections 1 through 4, verses, or 1 through 8, excuse me, Paul makes a fairly astounding claim. He makes the statement that if you are a Jew, you've received circumcision, but you don't perfectly keep the law, your circumcision actually counts for you as uncircumcision. He's saying in that statement that if you believe that you are, you are a Jew and you are part of the people of God and yet you don't live like it, you're just like any Gentile who doesn't know the law. You are condemned just as they are. He's saying you're no different from the Gentiles who are outside of the law who are outside of the people of God. In fact, in verse 27, Paul even says that those Gentiles who keep the law they will actually judge you, the Jew who doesn't. He's making this outstanding, astonishing statement, especially for the readers of his day, especially for the Jewish readers that would have read his words. And what he's ultimately getting at, and what we've been driving towards for now, little, almost, almost two chapters worth of content, from verse 18 of chapter 1 all the way through until now, is that everyone, whether they are Jew or Gentile, ultimately falls under the, the wrath of God because we are guilty. We are guilty in our sin, and the only thing that will right that wrong, the only thing that will, will fix that, 
Paul said in chapter 1, verse 16 and 17, it's ultimately the gospel of Jesus Christ that is received by faith. That is it. Faith alone in Jesus Christ. The righteousness of God that's been revealed through Jesus, and it's through Christ's death and Christ's resurrection, trusted in by faith alone, that will produce that right relationship with God. Apart from that, everyone is guilty. And then we come to chapter 3, verses 1 through 8, and what Paul does is actually, he takes a bit of a detour, because he, he ends chapter 2 talking about sin and guilt, and he's not going to really pick up that topic until chapter 3, verse 9, and so we have eight verses here, 1 through 8 of chapter 3, where he takes a bit of a detour, and what he's going to get into is this idea of what does it mean that God, what, what is the relationship like God, between God and the Jews like now? What does it mean that there are sinful Jewish people? What does it mean that there are Jewish people who are going to be judged? And how does that relate to, how does that comport with God and his covenant with them? It's good when we get to sections like this, and especially throughout much of Romans, actually, as we read it, is to imagine a, a bit of a dialogue that Paul's having with someone. It's like a Q&A section here, that, that Paul's responding to this imaginary objector. There's somebody who is challenging the words of Paul, challenging what Paul thinks, and so he is going to respond to them, he's going to answer them. The objector to Paul starts in verse 1, and he says, what advantage has the Jew? We can follow the logic a bit if we take it from chapter 2 into chapter 3, and, you can, and you'd say, well, if Jews are going to be judged by Gentiles, if Gentiles are going to be the true Jew, the Jew that is able to be a true Jew in their heart by the Spirit through their faith in Christ, then what's the benefit of being Jewish? Is there any benefit to being Jewish? That's the challenge to Paul. And underneath of this question is actually an accusation. What, what the objector is saying to Paul is, Paul, you don't care about the Jewish people anymore. You have, you've given up on your people, those who you would call your community, those who you would call part of your people. You've given up on them. You've abandoned them. And then if we, we pull this string a little further, the objector to Paul would say, not only have you abandoned the Jewish people, but you're teaching about this, you saying that the Jewish people are under condemnation and they are going to be judged, you're actually undermining and discrediting the entire Old Testament. Because the, the Old Testament is all about the people of God, the Jewish people that God has covenanted with. And so for the Jewish person reading this and responding to Paul, they're saying, what you're doing is actually undermining the entirety of the Old Testament. Because if you say the Jews don't have an advantage, then, then you have basically said that God in his covenant promise to the, to the Jewish people is wrong. And so the Old Testament is wrong. So the, the challenge to Paul is, what then is the advantage to the Jews? If we fast forward and put it into our context and brought it into some type of contemporary example, it would be similar to saying, what advantage is there to growing up in a Christian home? How many people, have, how many people had one or both of their parents were Christians? 
You've got a, a fair number of people who grew up in a home where you were exposed to the gospel, exposed to the Bible at a young age. So the question that's being posed to Paul is similar, that what, what advantage is it that a parent or both parents were Christians? If it doesn't guarantee my salvation, what's the profit of having Christian parents? And that's, the, that's for the Jewish mind, that's the, that's the question that's being asked of Paul. If it doesn't guarantee that when judgment comes, I won't be judged under the wrath of God, then what advantage is it that I'm Jewish? What advantage is it that I'm part of this covenant people of God? Being non-Jews, we would probably expect Paul's answer here to be, there isn't any. There's no advantage. But I think what that would do, if the, if the answer from Paul was there's no advantage, I think that kind of undermines what Paul's been doing throughout all of chapter 2. You see, Paul's not trying to convince his readers and convince us that the Jews don't have some type of privilege. That's not what Paul's trying to do. He's not trying to say the Jews don't have some advantage, the Jews don't have some privilege. What he's trying to say is, and what he's trying to convince his readers of is, the Jews have an advantage, the Jews have a privilege, but it does not mean that come judgment time, they get special treatment. That's what Paul's saying in chapter 2. And so for him to come along and then say, well, actually, they don't have any type of privilege here, they don't have any type of advantage, would undermine what he's doing in chapter 2. So I think it's right, then, that he says in verse 2, to, to the response of the question, what advantage has the Jews? He says, much, in every way. It made me think of the first Thor movie, if you remember that movie. The beginning of the movie, Thor operates like he is above everybody else. He can do whatever he wants. He can act however he wants. He can behave however he wants. He disobeys his father. He causes a lot of problems. But for Thor, it doesn't matter because he's Thor. He's the god of thunder. His father is Odin. He can do as he pleases and nothing will happen to him. So he's, he's somewhat shocked when his father actually strips him of his power, takes his hammer, and sends him down to earth until he figures out whatever's going on in his life. Because Thor operated under this assumption and this, this idea that because of his position, because of who he was, he could simply act and behave however he wanted. In a, in a very similar sense, Paul is saying to the Jews... You have a privilege, you have an advantage because of who you are, because of your position in God as the people of God. But that doesn't mean that you don't answer for your sins. That doesn't mean that you don't answer for your crimes, because you will. And you will answer for your sins, and you will be judged just as everyone else will. So you have this advantage, but you will still answer for what you've done. You will still answer for your sins. It's an interesting section of Scripture because Paul's going to deal with this in chapters 9 through 11 a lot more. He's going to get in a ton more detail about this. But what he's trying to do, what he's trying to convey here is that there is an advantage to the Jews. He'll get into one example of that. There is an advantage for the Jews, but it does not mean they will be cleared of all wrongdoing come judgment time simply because of their position. 
Paul actually gives a, one of those privileges in the latter half of verse 2. He says, to begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. I don't think this is Paul's main point, but I think it's good for us to reflect on this. If we placed ourselves in the position of the Jews, and we, we should in some sense because we are now, as the church, the people of God, we have been entrusted with, we have been privileged with, the, the oracles or the words, the scriptures of God. That's what God has gifted to us. He has given to us. That is one of the privileges that comes along with when Jesus says, when God says to us, you are now adopted as my child. One of those privileges and one of those responsibilities is we have, we have scripture. We have a word that we've been entrusted with. We have a word that we've been entrusted with that we should share with others. We have a word we've been entrusted with that we should convey to our children. We have a word that we've been entrusted with that we should be shaping our lives with. So I think the the appropriate question when we think of we have been entrusted with the word of God is, what are we doing with it? Are we allowing it to shape our lives? Do we study it? Do we value it? Do we take God's word and actually allow it to guide us? And ultimately, when we read scripture and when we hear scripture, are we changed by it? Or is it just something that's it's part of life? It's part of life as a Christian, and it really doesn't matter how we engage with it or how we treat God's word. And I think we'll see, especially in the example of the Jews that Paul's talking about, is it does matter. It does matter what, what God has entrusted us with what we do with that. It's interesting here because Paul actually uses the phrase to begin with. The, the idea of this is first of all, or you could say chiefly, what is, what is most important? So what is the most important thing, what is the most important privilege that the Jewish people have? According to Paul, it's that they have scripture. It's that God has actually spoken to them. If you're interested in like, Paul's remainder of the list, because he says, first of all, so you're expecting a list, um, Romans 9, 4 to 5, that's where you'll find the list that Paul expands on. What are all the privileges? What are the advantages of being a Jew? But I think he uses this as one example, and he, he puts in there that this is the chief or the supreme advantage for the Jew, and I think he does that intentionally. We talked about this before in, in a prior sermon a number of months ago, but God's speaking to people in the ancient Near Eastern culture that was the Jewish culture was greatly desired but very rare. There was, a, there was a desire back in that time to have the God speak to them. Every religion wanted their God to speak to them. And yet only one religion did. And that's the true religion, what, what the Jews received through the word of God. So God giving his word directly to the Jews would have been understood as this element of this divine, special, close relationship that God had with his people. It would be similar to, in our context, if I can use a silly example, it'd be similar to like our favorite athlete or a celebrity picking us out of a crowd to talk with us and how excited that would be for us. How we would probably talk about it the rest of the day. We would probably tell everyone we knew, this person, this, this famous celebrity or athlete talked to me. Now take that excitement and all of the emotions that are in there, like 
jump them up by like an infinity, and that's God speaking to his people. That, that's the idea. There is an excitement about this. There's something privileged about this. And two Old Testament texts highlight this for us. Deuteronomy 4 verse 8 says, What other nation is so great as to have such righteous decrees and laws as this body of laws I am setting before you today? That's God's word to the Jews. Psalm 147, 19 and 20. He has revealed his word to Jacob, his laws and decrees to Israel. He has done this for no other nation. They do not know his laws. So there's a privilege to being a Jew that while it is there, while it is present, it does not give some great advantage at judgment because judgment's still coming. So then remember I mentioned that this is kind of a dialogue between an objector and Paul. So Paul's objector comes along and he says, and I'm going to present you with two challenges. We'll deal with these individually. The first challenge is this. And we'll find this in verses 3 and really verse 3 into verse 4. He says, Paul, you, you say that the Jews are privileged. You say that the Jews are, are privileged, but they will be judged for breaking the law and for their unbelief. And ultimately, it can't be both. They can't be both privileged and under God's wrath at the same time. It has to be one or the other. So, Paul, if what you're saying about the Jews is true then ultimately God is unfaithful because he's not keeping his promises. So there is a charge against Paul and there's a charge against God that says, if this is true, if the Jews are under judgment, then God's not faithful. He's not keeping his word. He's not keeping his promises. The, the questions in verse 3, if we read them, it says, what if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? If we flip those around into some type of declarations rather than questions, it would go something like this. The objector would be saying, well, Paul, there's unfaithful Jews. Paul's response would be, yeah, what of it? That doesn't mean that God's unfaithful. That, that's his response to these, this objector here that he's dialoguing with. In fact, if you look at his response in verse to, to the questions of verse 3, his response is in verse 4. In the, the translation of the ESV, it says, by no means. It is a, a Greek phrase that actually has the strongest possible negation there could possibly be in the Greek language. If you looked at other translations, it would say something along the lines of, um, may it never be. If you have a King James in front of you, it says, God forbid. The, the strongest possible way you can say absolutely not is what Paul's saying. He wants it to be emphatic that if, if you were to come with an accusation that because the Jewish people are unfaithful, that means that God is unfaithful. That is absolutely wrong. You are 100% incorrect. There is no way that the unfaithfulness of some Jews would negate the faithfulness of God. The language that Paul uses in these verses, especially verses 2 and 3, is very interesting because if you recall, what did God do as a privilege for Israel? He, he trusts them with his very words. He entrusts them with his very words, yet they were unfaithful. Where they have been faithless, God has been faithful. 
And so Paul's response to this objector would be, the problem here is not God, the problem here is the Jews. The problem here is their lack of faith. And so the fact that the Jewish unfaithfulness has resulted in condemnation, has resulted in them being under the wrath of God, God is still faithful and God is still righteous. Paul expands this then in verse 4, and he uses a very remarkable phrase, a very striking phrase. He says, let God be true, though everyone were a liar. This phrase should strike us as, as difficult, mostly because we live and we operate in a culture and in a society and in a world that has placed humans at the center of the universe. And we have really placed ourselves at the center of the universe. We are, we are consumed with ourselves, ultimately. And, and what Paul does here in this phrase is actually, he shatters this idea of a man-centered, self-consumed world. Because what he's actually saying is that God is faithful even when some Jews, even if in a majority of Jews are unfaithful. But not only that, God is equally faithful even if every person, even if everyone were unfaithful and perishing. Even if every person in the entire world who has ever existed were to be unfaithful and lost, what Paul's saying in verse 4 in that phrase is, God is still faithful and God is still right and God is still good. How do we think about that? That's a, it's an astounding thing to think about. Because what Paul's saying ultimately is he's the center of the universe. He is the preeminent one. He is the supreme one. It's not about us. It's about him. So that no matter what happens to the entire world, whether the entire world, all people are cast into hell and under the wrath of God, God is still good and God is still right. It's a wild thing for us to think because we don't think and operate that way. If we were to think about what future glory, what heaven looks like, I doubt any of us would be thinking of a situation where we're not there. But I think all too often we live in a, we live in a way and, and live our lives in a way that suggests that our future glory, our heaven, is a place where Jesus isn't there. So while we can, we can imagine a heaven that includes us, we can also imagine a heaven that doesn't include God. And I think it's most evident by, by the way we answer this question. Where do we find happiness? Where is our joy found? There was a survey a couple years ago that actually asked the question, what, what is the first thing that comes to your mind about what makes you happy? If someone were to ask what makes you happy, what's the first thing that comes to your mind? Here's, here's the list in order. Family, love, music, spouse, Food, friends, kids, pet, children, and grandchildren. Those are the top of the list. I think if we did a survey and said, what is the first thing that comes to your mind about what brings you joy, what brings you happiness? I doubt our survey looks very different than those answers. The question for us is how far down on the list 
would we have to go before Jesus actually arrives? I imagine that when we think of this idea of happiness and joy, and we think of what future glory looks like, we have to operate and live in a way that, that finds value and joy in Jesus, that finds value and joy in God, rather than everything else in our lives. So that when all that other stuff in our lives gets stripped away, life doesn't come crumbling down because why? We have the one who is valuable. We have the Jesus who is worth everything. The objector to Paul would probably say, well, why can you say this? How can you actually say that this is true, Paul, that, that God is still faithful even in judging sin? And he supports this by actually quoting the Old Testament, Psalm 51. That's the end of verse 4. He quotes Psalm 51. And if you're familiar with that chapter in that, in that section of Psalms, it's actually David who writes this psalm in response to sin that he has been that has been flushed out in his life. He has taken Bathsheba, he has gotten her pregnant, he has killed her husband. And so his response to that is Psalm 51, and he says this in Psalm 51.4. Against you, he's talking to God, against you, you alone have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Then Paul quotes this last phrase, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. So what David is saying is that the reason that God is just to judge him is that the sin that he's committed is against God. So that God's judgment of his sin is actually perfectly in line with his character and his nature and his glory, and ultimately it's aligned with his covenant. So let's follow the logic here. Verse 3, Jewish unbelief does not nullify or cancel God's faithfulness. Verse 4, even if every person were faithless, even if every person were lost and under God's judgment, God is still faithful. Why can Paul say that's true? Because David said that God is just and faithful to judge him because of his sin. And David doesn't, doesn't pipe up in Psalm 51 and say, well, well wait, God, I'm, I'm a Jew. And not only am I a Jew, I'm the king Jew. He is the Jew of all Jews. And he doesn't use his position, he doesn't use his status to say, I am free from judgment. He says, God, whatever judgment you bring against me for my sin is just and it's fair and it's right. So then our objector comes along in verse 5. And he, he challenges Paul again with a, with a second challenge. And it goes something like this. And this is going to be kind of wild to walk through and navigate. This is why I said this is a challenging passage. The objector would say to Paul, okay, Paul, if you're right, if our sin, our unrighteousness results in God's righteous judgment of our sin, then our sin actually magnifies the righteousness of God. It actually exalts the righteousness of God. And if that's true, that when God judges us, his righteousness and his justice is exalted, then we're not actually sinners. We're God glorifiers. And God can't rightly judge and condemn those who glorify him. And so we are not under the wrath of God. Look at it in verse 5. It says, But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, 
what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us. I, I hope we pause here and just reflect on the, the linguistic gymnastics that these people, that this objector is going through. This is, this is playing games with God. This is playing games with theology. This is taking what Paul has said and twisting it and manipulating it to fit one's agenda. That's what this challenge is. The objector is basically acting as though by sinning, they're doing God a favor. Because when they sin, God's righteousness gets to be magnified. And the objector would say, well, Paul, you just said that. And, and David said that himself. He said that when he sins, God's righteousness is magnified. So I can't be condemned. I, I can't possibly be placed under wrath. And, and it's playing a game. It's manipulating things to fit one's sinful agenda. During political debates, there's... Um, something that happens in the background while the two people are speaking and even after the people are done speaking on the stage, that uh, it's called the spin room, if you're familiar with this concept, if you ever watched it. And what it is, it's, it's advisors to the candidates who are standing behind the scenes, talking to the media, and trying to manipulate and influence things to make their candidate look good, to make their candidate be favorable in people's eyes. That's what that spin room is where they're sitting there and they're dissecting everything and twisting everything and manipulating everything to be what is favorable for them and manipulating all of that, it's exactly what these people are doing. They're, they're spinning and twisting the words of Paul in order to be a benefit for them. And it's like playing games with God. And unfortunately, unlike the 90s sitcom TV show where you play games with a 14-year-old's emotions but everything works out okay, when you play games with God, there is no happy ever after. Paul's response to the second challenge is similar to the first. He says there in verse 6, by no means, may it never be, absolutely not, God forbid. Even though it's true that God's righteousness is magnified when he judges sin, it's not true that this results in God being unrighteous. So the, the objector to Paul is challenging the faithfulness and the righteousness of God, and to both charges, Paul says, absolutely not. No way. And he finishes in verses 6, 7, and 8 by actually stating back to the objector, if you honestly think that this is true, if you honestly think this is right, you've walked yourself into three contradictions. The first one's in verse six. He says, for then how could God judge the world? Remember, Paul's objector to this text is who? It's a, it's a self-righteous Jew. And, and the objector to Paul would actually say to him, I have no problem with the Gentiles being judged. I have no problem with the world being judged. What I have a problem with is the Jews being judged. So I have no problem with those Gentiles being judged. But what Paul says is, if, you're, if your twist of things, if, you're, if your games you're playing are actually true, there is no judgment. It will never happen. God, God is not in a position then to judge the world. And for the Jew... That goes against everything you believe because you believe God will judge the world. 
So you've walked yourself into your own contradiction. The second one he gives in verse 7, he's, Paul brings up himself because, again, these Jewish objectors have an, have an issue with Paul. They think what Paul's saying and what Paul's doing is wrong and that what he's teaching is wrong. And so because of that position on Paul, they would say that Paul should also be judged. And so what Paul says is, you believe I'm lying and you deserve judgment, but it would be unjust for Paul to be punished. So Paul says in verse 7, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? It doesn't make sense that you would think I should be condemned because based on your own logic, there is no, there is no judgment, there is no condemnation. God is just going to be righteous by me lying, and so why do you have a problem with what I'm saying? You've, you've walked yourself, objector, into a second contradiction. The third one we find in verse 8. If what the objector says is true, Paul says, then why don't we just keep sinning? Why doesn't everyone just keep sinning so that good may come? And if, if by my sin I'm actually a God glorifier and not a sinner, then I'm safe from the wrath of God, so I will just keep on doing what I'm doing. And I would actually be doing God a favor by sinning. Paul says to the Jewish objector, not only have you contradicted yourself because that's completely illogical and it doesn't fit within the Jewish framework of things, but your condemnation, he says at the end, your condemnation is just. Your position under the wrath of God is perfectly just. Difficult passage to understand. Difficult section of scripture to, to pick apart, but I trust and I hope we've been able to navigate through a, a couple of challenging points from Paul. So a few points of application and we'll be done for the evening. First, God's grace in Christ, his righteousness that he has given to us is not a license to sin. And it doesn't exempt us from dealing with and having concern over our sin. Just because we're Christians doesn't mean we get to then take the, the sins in our lives and just sweep them under a rug that we call grace and say, it's all good, I'll just keep living the way I want to live. I'll just keep doing the things that I want to do. Rather, it's God's grace to us in Christ that, that gives us a power to fight and to kill sin that we otherwise wouldn't have. So for myself where I have aspects and things that I struggle with that relate to pride, and it affects the relationships I have. God's grace doesn't, say, doesn't simply say, well, that's all covered, so keep living the way you want to live. Keep living in your pride. God's grace says, yes, that's covered, so you are positionally saved. You are positionally justified. Your, your pride is covered so that you are not condemned, but... That same grace that covers your pride, that same grace should help you kill your pride. And maybe for you it's pride, maybe for you it's anger, maybe for you it's lust, maybe for you it is gossip, maybe for you it's name, name any other sin that you could possibly think of or struggle with. And when you, you think about those things, it's God's grace that says to you, I've got you covered 
but you still need to fight. Grace doesn't mean that we just get to go on living however we want to live. Second point of application. God's justice and righteousness is ultimately grounded in a concern for his glory. God will not tolerate being treated as though he is unfaithful and he's unrighteous. His glory is what is most important, and so that even if the entire world is condemned and in hell, God is still just, and he is still righteous, and he is still glorious. What is just and what is right for us is that we spend an eternity in hell. That's what's just for us. That's what we deserve. However, God saw fit to gift us faith and gift us salvation in Jesus so that God would no longer look at us as people under wrath, but when he looks at those who have trusted in him, he sees Jesus. He no longer sees condemned people. He sees that our sins have been paid, our debt has been forgiven. And now, just as God is concerned for his glory and his righteousness and his faithfulness and all of his attributes and characteristics being magnified, we now, because of our position in Christ, are privileged to be concerned about the same thing. We are privileged to bring glory to our God who is just and who is righteous and who is merciful. Because what we deserve was hell and what God has given us is just mercy. Third, God is just. He will punish sin. We've heard about that for two chapters plus now. And if you're listening to these words and you have never trusted in Jesus, you've never placed your faith in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, Paul's words at the end in verse 8 are for you. Your condemnation is just. If you've tried to play games with God and manipulated things you've heard to to fit your own agenda, those words at verse 8 are for you. Your condemnation is just. The penalty for for your sin against the holy God is ultimately eternity in hell. And the only remedy for that is to turn to Jesus who has sacrificed himself, who has given his life so that we might be forgiven. Judgment is coming for all people. It's going to come. That's been very clear throughout the first two chapters of Romans. Judgment's coming for everyone. Either we will face judgment being ushered into heaven mercifully, saved under mercy, or we will face judgment condemned justly. Those are our two options. If you've never trusted in Christ, your condemnation is just. But there is hope and there is opportunity to place your faith in Jesus and ultimately be saved through his mercy. At Eternal City Church, we take communion every week. Communion we we take weekly as a reminder that for those who have trusted in Jesus for the forgiveness of sins, that forgiveness of sins came at a cost, came because Jesus sacrificed himself for us. And so we take communion together each week as a symbol, as a reminder of the the blood that was shed, the body that was broken on our behalf, We take it together as one church, ultimately as a symbol and a reminder of the unity that we have together 
in Christ. And nothing we do this evening in taking communion will save us, but it ultimately helps us remember Jesus, remember his death until he comes.